Well, friends, this will be our last lesson on the third chapter of the 1689 of God's decree. And so this will be part four. We could have spent more time walking through this, but we're going to finish up here on these last three paragraphs. And some of the things we'll talk about, we've, we've hit on already slightly, but we're going to do a slight review as we walk through these last three paragraphs and also emphasize a little bit of application, how it is that we can understand these truths, how... Um, our understanding of God's decree as it is taught in the Word of God uh, should influence us, should affect us, how it is that we should respond uh, to this truth. So we're going to walk through particular redemption, the origin of the decree, which is very important. Where did this decree come from? From where does this decree come forth from? Um, and lastly, our response. So let's read paragraph 5 of chapter 3 of the 1689. It says, those of mankind that are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without anything in the creature as a condition or cause moving him there unto. I want to review the doctrine of particular redemption and, and, and remind us what this is that we have, um, we, are, we are being taught here this concept of particular redemption that there is a particular people that Jesus died for. That the Lord, when he died upon the cross, was covering the sins of a particular people and particular sins that those particular people were going to commit. And this is very different from this idea of a, a general atonement. The general idea of an atonement is that the blood of Jesus just covers all sin everywhere. Everyone's sin is forgiven through the work of Christ. Um, however, if you grew up like I did in a good old Southern Baptist church, you were taught that this doctrine of general um, atonement, and it was taught to you like this, that the Jesus on the cross died and covered every sin that was ever committed except for the sin of unbelief. That is the one sin that he didn't. And that, okay, kind of makes sense if you don't think about it too much, just in the way in which evangelism is many times done, that but then when you think about it more and consider it biblically, it makes absolutely no sense at all. I remember when I read through the book of Revelation the first time, I was really surprised when I got to those latter chapters. And I was reading through 19, 20, 21, and 22. And I saw those who were cast into the lake of fire. And I saw the particular sins that they were guilty of. And that they were being thrown into the lake of fire because of. And I was confused because unbelief wasn't actually one of the sins that were there. And that was supposed to be the one sin that would send you to hell because all the others were covered. But instead, you have all of these other sins that are laid out there. All liars, like we used to chant as children, um, murderers, um, all, all different types of sins are laid out and listed there. And I have no better reason as to why those sins are listed there other than the people are guilty of those sins. They were judged by God because of those sins that they had intentionally and freely committed, and they were being held accountable for the sins that they 
committed, which means that the blood of Jesus did not cover all of those sins. What is that saying about the blood of Jesus? If, if Jesus' atonement covers sins, but yet someone can be held accountable for those sins that Jesus' atonement covered, what does that say for you? For you that are trusting in Christ, you who have believed upon Christ, if that can happen for someone else, don't just say, well, that's someone else. They're not really believing. They committed the unpardonable sin. No, they're being held accountable for very particular sins. Even in our Constitution, we don't have this, you know, the idea of double jeopardy is not allowed. You cannot be found innocent of something and then be brought back to court and tried again. Why do we have that rule? Well, because there, was, there were times in other countries, England, for example, where someone, they would just keep bringing the same person back to court keep running them through it again until they could finally get a guilty verdict. No, if you've been found innocent, then you are innocent. The same thing is true here. If you have peace with God, then you actually have peace with God. If your sins have been atoned for, then they have actually been atoned for. There's not a, a there's no, Jesus is not taking that back. It's not as though, okay, your sins are covered today, but if you don't keep up with what you're supposed to do, how many of you as a child were told, if you don't clean your room, this is going to happen. You can have this privilege so long as you do this, that, and the other thing. Okay, there may be good warrant to do that as a parent at times. To give a reward for certain behaviors and give a consequence for other behaviors, there may be warrant for that. That's not how atonement works. Okay, you're not gaining the benefits of the work of Jesus by grace and through faith and having them yanked from you at some other point later. There is a particular redemption, a particular... Let's, let's walk through a couple passages that talk about this or in some way allude to it or emphasize it. Isaiah 53, 8 through 11. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. We have this emphasized in a couple points within this passage. We see specifically in verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. There are a particular people that are in mind there, a particular people that are being emphasized there. It's not this just general group. It's not just, it's not a, the people that Jesus died for, the sins that Jesus is covering on the cross, they weren't just some theoretical group of sins. These aren't just a, a theoretical group of people. When I talk about my children, I'm not talking about this general theoretical group. There, there are five individuals that are in mind when I talk about 
my children, how strange would it be for you to just talk about them as this theoretical concept. No, these are, these are actual people with actual personalities. Um, and the Lord here is covering the sins for a particular people. And again, in the last verse, we see this as well in, in verse 11. It says, make many to be accounted righteous, that he shall bear their iniquities. Whose iniquities is he bearing? Those who are accounted righteous. Those are the ones. It's not just everyone everywhere whose iniquities that he's covering. And okay, he did that. He covered it all. He made the elixir. Okay, he's going to give you enough so-called prevenient grace here so that you can come out of a state of deadness because we don't want to be Pelagian and say that you're just like Adam and Eve. So you're going to be brought to a state of living where you're just maybe, I don't know, mostly dead. And, but then you, you can still just move a little bit, right? What was that? Princess Bride, he could, he could at least swallow something, right? Well, you can at least, at least reach out and grab that. Or the elixir is being put to your mouth and you just swallow the elixir. But, but you, you've got to do your part. Jesus is throwing that light. Um, preserver out there. Life preserver is being thrown out in the waves and you've got to reach out and grab it. These are all illustrations that make sense to us when we think of our conversion in the first person from our own perspective. But when we have an understanding theologically and we understand the passages of scripture and we systematize these ideas and we bring them all together it doesn't work, and, and our theology cannot be based upon whatever we experienced or whatever we felt at the time or thought at the time. There's a great many things that we can think that aren't consistent and aren't right. If, if, we were, if all we needed to do was just go by our own experience and our own understandings and, and whatever happened to us, we wouldn't need the scriptures. You could just walk around expressing Whatever it was that you experienced and felt, and honestly, you wouldn't need to tell anyone else because they could just do the same thing themselves. If that's all it is, is just us conjuring up our own theological ideas and concepts because of our own experience. Nobody needs to say anything to anyone. Just whatever you experience, that's, that's what it is. Look at John 10, beginning in verse uh, 11 through 18. There's, there's many passages we could look at here, and we're not going to walk through them all. Um, let's look at beginning in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who? For the sheep. There's a particular people that are in mind. There are particular sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep. Again, this is a particular group. It's not a theoretical idea. A shepherd with sheep isn't just taking care of this theoretical idea of a flock. This theoretical group. No, there are a particular sheep that are there. This is very much tied and contained within even the illustration that Jesus is using here, being the good shepherd. So, going back, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Again, very personal, very particular. 
Not only do I know who they are, they know who I am. Those are the sheep. Those are the people. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Again, very personal, very specific. And I lay my life down for the sheep. For the sheep, not the goats. Jesus has laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus atoned the sin of the sheep. He did not atone the sin of the goats. That would be the other category that biblically people are put in that is contrary to being a a sheep or being in the fold. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. They know me just as the father knows me. I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Okay. Just in case any of you are familiar with the teaching of Joseph Smith, he really liked this verse. And he said that this verse is talking about Native Americans in the uh, United, well, not the United States at the time, but in the New World. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Gentiles. Okay, that's going to unpack. It's going to follow going forward as the apostles begin to go out. And there's many diasporas and people are going out. And the good news of the gospel of Christ Jesus is going to go forward Jesus is not intending for you to look at a verse like this and say, oh, well, certainly that, that there's this other story going on in the new world, which wasn't even heard of at the time. And that's, that's not what it's talking about. None of you thought that, but I read it and I had to say it anyway. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Okay, that's the other thing I didn't mention. His belief here is that he's talking about the fact that he actually beamed over to the United States and, and preached to them. That, that's the part that's not mentioned here. He actually went over there, and uh, that's, that's kind of what he's talking about. I've got to go over there and speak to them. So he goes over to the United States, and he's, he's preaching. Again, not the United States at the time, the New World, the Native Americans that were there, which Joseph Smith taught were Jews, very interesting DNA was not good for that theory. I'll just say that. The modern um, understanding of genetics has not boded well on that, that, that concept. Um, neither has history boded well on the many stories that have come forward um, from his teaching. But he says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Again, this is Jews and Gentiles. One flock, again, dispensationalists. This is one flock. These aren't two different groups of people that Jesus is going to deal with differently. There's one group of people. They're all covered by the blood of Christ. Don't listen to someone like John Hagee that teaches that you don't need to share the gospel with Jewish people because they already have their way to get saved. No, no. Their way to get saved is by trusting in the Messiah to come prior to his coming, trusting in the Messiah as he was there, or trusting in the Messiah who has come. You're saved through Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're going through Jesus in no other way. You're saved by grace and through faith. He continues, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's look at the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, who the people of God, the people who are being saved, the people whose sins who have been, have been atoned for. Titus 2 and verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's a quote from a man named Arden Hodgins who has been very influential on me as we've gone through this study. Um, He says this, if God loves all men in general, he loves no one in particular. If God loves all men in general, he loves no one in particular. God absolutely shows a a general love for people in that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. God gives blessings to all people everywhere in some way, but there is a special love that the Lord has for his, his people. So he doesn't love all people in the exact same way. Look at Paul's wording as he says this in Galatians chapter 2 and how very personal and specific he speaks of the work of Jesus. Galatians 2 and verses 20 and 21, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's speaking very specifically about the love of God, very specifically about the atonement of Jesus and the application of that atonement upon himself. It's not general, it's specific. He gave himself for Paul in particular, and he gave himself for Paul in particular in a way in which he did not give himself for everyone else that has ever existed. I think we've covered that. I don't think I need to emphasize the the particularity of the atonement of Jesus. I want to talk about the source of God's decree. Where does this decree come from? Because the confession emphasizes this. We see this this at the end of paragraph 5. It says, those of mankind who are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. Okay, so this decree that we are talking about in this chapter came forth from God himself. It flows forth from God. This decree, God's intention, God's intentionality of saving a particular people, I'm talking right now specifically about his decree in saving people, did not come forward in response to those who are redeemed. He did not see that you were going to be such a good and sweet and beautiful person and say his heart was then just moved within him. I must save this person because of their greatness and their beauty, because of all that is within them. Well, who would like to give that as their personal testimony? Who would like to talk of that? You know, let me tell you what happened. I was this, that, and the other thing, but the Lord saw how great I was, even in my sinful state. The Lord saw how great I would become and all the good things that I would do. And so the Lord was moved to save me. The Lord was moved 
to redeem me. The Lord was moved to choose me. Now, the decree of God flows forward from God. He is not responding to you. God is eternal. God is not being changed and affected by that which is temporal. God is not changing in and of himself or changing what he has determined to do. He is, we've covered it before, but he's not like the Molinist God. He's not a supercomputer trying to figure out all the possible ways in which he can create the world and calculating them all out to bring forward the best world that could possibly come forward. And then you see all the terrible things that happen in the world, all the pain and all the suffering. And you say, well, this is, this is the best that he could do. His goal was to save as many as he possibly could and this is the best he could do. There's just going to be some, some difficulties. Okay, There's going to be some eggs that are cracked in making the omelet. This is just the consequences of God dealing with all these things. But you've got to understand that he calculated all the many different ways and all the things that people would possibly do and all the possible contingent things that could possibly happen. Nice theory, but it... it it's contrary to what the scriptures say about the Lord. It has no basis in scripture. There's no, nothing in scripture that gives us this kind of an idea that this is how the Lord is, is saving people. The Lord is moving to bring people to faith. No, God saved you because of himself. God's moved to save you. God chose you if you are, in fact, in Christ Jesus because of a decree that came forward from himself. Could the Jews, in the middle of their rebellion, as, as Jeremiah is preaching to them, and Jeremiah is declaring to them their sinfulness, could they just declare, look, God chose us out of all the people in the world because he knew how great we would be, because he knew how obedient we would be. They were walking in disobedience 10 minutes after they walked through the Red Sea. Being a little hyperbolic, but that's, it didn't take long for the sinful hearts to, to, to show themselves. The decree that God gave came from himself. If it had been about them, they would have been removed. They would have been the Messiah would not have come from them, but the Lord made a promise. And it comes from what we call the, the covenant of redemption, which was made between the Father and the Son in eternity past. And so that decree that he brings forward comes forward from God himself, not in response to you, not him looking through the corridors of time and saying, you know, those he foreknew, well, he... It means he knows ahead of time who's going to believe and who's not. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to pick that one. I'm going to pick that one. That's a good one. I'm going to pick that one too because that one's going to believe. That one almost, but okay. Samson, he pulled at, at the end. At the end, he had faith. And so I'll pick that one as well. And he'll be in Hebrews chapter 11. That's not how, that's not how this works. This is not God responding to us. Second Timothy 1 and verse 9 
says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see Paul speaking very specifically on this. He called us not because of our works or how great we were going to be or how awesome we were or how special we were, but because of his own purpose and grace. Is that not even what he says to the Jews when he's speaking to them? He says, I chose you. Said, I chose you because you were the greatest nation. You were the most successful. You were the most industrious. You were the most intelligent. You were the most holy. No, none of those. It was for his own purpose. And not even that, even to make his power known. To, to show himself. To say, I'm going to demonstrate my power, my holiness, my righteousness, in contrast to all these pagan gods, by raising up a slave that was sold into slavery by his own family and sent into Egypt. A man who went into slavery there ended up being given great charge in that country and raising up a people even from them. We'll have a man named Moses that will grow up even within, even within the, the household of Pharaoh and will demonstrate the power of God. Demonstrate the goodness of God. Demonstrate the glory of God in contrast to all these pagan gods. So he didn't look down the corridors of time. He chose his people because of who he is, because of his sovereign choice, because of, as, as Paul says here, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. What? Before the ages began. Again, hinting at that covenant of redemption that was made in eternity between the Father and the Son. You see that more in Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's look on at paragraph 6 of uh, chapter 3. It says, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath by eternal, his eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called or, or justified and saved, but the elect only. Some will say, Look, if you believe in predestination, if we've already covered this, this, this false concept, but I'll, I'll, I'll just remind us of it. You who believe in Calvinism, you who believe in predestination, you believe that God has called those whom he will save. He has made that determination. You, you don't believe in evangelism. You don't think you have to do anything. No, we believed that God has ordained the ends as well as the means. We see that emphasized there in the statement, foreordained all the means thereunto. So everything that is involved in something coming to faith in Christ Jesus, everything from the crops that were grown, whereby that evangelist would be raised up and eat them, and all the crops that came before that, so that everyone who... Um, 
All, all of those in his ancestry that were prior to him ate and were sustained all the way to the point where he is able to share the gospel with someone else. God has ordained all of this. And we could go into many more details there, but we don't need to. But very specifically, God has ordained the ends as well as the means. So God is going to call a people to himself by sending one who would share Christ with him, would share law and gospel with him. Some will say, well, what about that, that man on the island? It's always on an island. I don't know why the man is always on the island. I always, you get the question about what about this man on the island that would believe in Jesus if someone just shared Christ with him? Well, what does Jesus say about his sheep? The good shepherd goes and gathers his sheep. If there is someone out there who is going to believe upon Jesus when the gospel is shared with them, the Lord's going to send an evangelist to them. The Lord's going to bring someone to that person. The Lord's going to order things in a such a way where that person will hear the good news of Christ. Jesus will believe upon Christ. We'll be justified. We'll have peace with God. You don't have to ask questions like this. That's, that's what the Lord's going to do. There are a great many people that need to worry about this guy, on the, this theoretical guy on the island somewhere. What about all the people around you? What about the opportunities that you have? What about the good and blessed opportunities the Lord gives you in your own life? What, what about those people? Those are the ones that you could, you could really, instead of it being this just theoretical guy, what about those very particular people that you come in contact with? The Lord gives you opportunity. The Lord ordains the ends as well as the means. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2. 13 through 17, it says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God the Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We see many things in this passage that we'll hit on as we continue in, in, the, in the confession here in this, in this chapter. But we see the Lord choosing them to be saved. And you also see the emphasis on the means that he is using, the words that are there, the sanctification the Lord has ordained. First Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing again there is a destiny for those that are in christ there are a particular people that are saved we have this this verse which is famously known as the golden chain of redemption romans 8 and verse 30 and those whom he predestined he also called those whom he called he also justified those whom he justified he also glorified and what we must understand here is that there is a, a line that is here there's a chain that is here those that are 
are, are predestined are those that are going to be justified. Those that are justified are going to be glorified. There, there is a, a line of what is going to happen. There is one is going to follow the other. You can't have one of these and not the, the other. Um, lastly, in this, this paragraph, they deal with this, this idea that only the elect are, are redeemed. Okay, we've, and here, here's what needs to be understood. This whole idea, because I keep using the word particular redemption, but the word, you know, the phrase that oftentimes gets a bad rap is that of limited atonement. And we like limited atonement because it is the L in tulip and we need it to say tulip. And if we change it to a P and be particular redemption, we don't have a tulip. And then we, all of our memes that we've made over the years, all of our different jokes that we've made, they don't work anymore. All the Valentines that my wife has sent me over the years, they, they don't work anymore. And so she's done that, by the way. She'll send me all these Valentines with uh, Calvin and other silly reformers on them. Um, only the elect are, are redeemed. And this, this idea here that, look, you believe in limited atonement, and you believe that the atonement of Jesus is limited, and it, and it make, you want to be like, I don't want it to be limited. I think Jesus can do anything he wants to do. Right? The, the, the power of Jesus and, and the blood of the cross can forgive any sin that's ever been committed. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the particularity of the atonement and the application of that atonement. And so here's what needs to be understood. Someone can disagree with this concept of limited atonement, but unless you're a universalist, everyone believes in limited atonement. The question is, who is limiting the atonement? And so what is a universalist? That's someone that believes that the blood of Jesus forgives everyone who has ever lived anywhere. Now, some will take a caveat to this and say, well, Hitler and Pol Pot and you know, Genghis Khan and Mao Zedong. You know, so they'll have a list of, okay, these, these 10 people here in history. Okay, not them, but, but everyone else, the, the blood of Jesus covered. Well, um, that's not a orthodox view in Christianity. So if you're going to be orthodox, you do believe in a limited atonement. The question is, who limits the atonement? Did, did God limit the atonement? in particular redemption by choosing a particular people and forgiving their sins and not others? Or did man limit the atonement in not believing upon Jesus, thereby his sins weren't covered? I think we've already dispelled this idea that the only, only sin to be forgiven is unbelief. Like all the sins need to be forgiven and the blood's not applied to you until you believe upon the Christ. The wrath of God is over you prior to that time. So everyone believes in limited atonement unless you're a, a universalist. And so that, that needs to be clearly, clearly understood. Um, only the elect are redeemed. Let's look at John 10, 24 through 30. It says, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I tell you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe in me because you are not among my sheep. Again, we have this um, different category of people. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, there's the, 
Those that want to be a one-point Calvinist and say, once saved, always saved, no one will snatch them out of his hand. Well, yes, that's true, but we also understand this fuller in the understanding of perseverance of the saints. That there are, There's going to be a change in those that are brought to faith in Christ Jesus. Continuing, um, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Only those who are elect, only those who are Christ's sheep. And we've seen where he talks about his sheep and choosing his sheep previously. Only those who are elect are going to be redeemed. John 17, 6 through 10. I have manifested your name to the people. This is the high priestly prayer, by the way. Okay, Jesus is praying. Uh, Garden Gethsemane, prior to his arrest, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given is me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you and have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look at the particularity of his prayer there. He's praying specifically for his people. He is, I'm not going to go through the details now, he is praying very specifically for his, his disciples at this time, but this is also a prayer for, for all of his people in other ways that I'm not going to break this down at this exact moment. But understand this, that I am praying for them. He's not praying for the world. He's not praying for all people everywhere. He's not praying that all people would, would come. It's not what he's doing here. He's making a very particular distinction amongst people. All mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Let's look at the last paragraph. It says, the doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the, wor- the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise, reverence, admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundance, consolation, and all the sincerity, obey the gospel. It says this, he says, to be assured of their eternal election, so shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise. And, and, and how could it not? How could it not bring forth a, a, a matter of, of praise? God has demonstrated his goodness and his blessing to you. He has called you out of darkness. He has brought you into light. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Look at the connection there of Paul in praising God in talking about God's sovereign choice and God predestining his people and God calling his people to himself. 
We see these terms used as well, reverence, admiration of God, and humility. You will help you, oh, you, you're a Calvinist, you're just prideful. You think God just chose you because there's something special about you. You just think you're better than everyone else. It's the very opposite. It's the very opposite. Because I want you to think about this. If it was about you just making the right choice and you just being the one who brought it from within yourself to repent, you all from within yourself believing, why do you not have something to boast? Are you not wiser than other people? Are you not more intelligent than other people? Are you not holier than other people? Do you not have something that you can put forward on your religious resume and see, see, I'm not like these other people. Praise God, I'm not like this guy or that guy. I No, that's not how you see Paul interacting with this. It's not a matter of pride to believe in God's sovereignty. It's not a matter of pride to believe that, that God has called you out of darkness to light. It is a matter of humility to recognize there was nothing good in you. I was wretched and vile. And any goodness I have now comes only because of the work of God within me, not because I mustered it up myself and I just pulled myself together and I just got my stuff together. <clears throat> Look at Paul here in uh, Romans 11, 33 to 36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him. And he, can, he continues on there. But you see him responding here in, in, in praise and admiration of God. This is the very opposite of pride. Not say because of anything good in us, not anything about us. No, we were, as Paul says in Romans 6.20, for you were slaves of sin, all right, but you are free in regard to righteousness. We were, we were slaves to sin. We were brought out of that. And that is where a doctrine like this should land us. It should land us in praise of God, in humility, at thankfulness at what God has done because of who he is. And it should remind us to trust in his means. The Lord is calling a people to himself by his grace and for his glory. He's using a particular means. The means he is using is the proclamation of the gospel. We must trust in God. We must trust in his means, knowing it's not of us. For God will get the glory and not ourselves.